HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Coming this May from Heritage Radio Network, the surprising stories of how artists, activists, and entrepreneurs collide in one special Brooklyn community that's changing faster by the day. I am 28 years old. I live in Bushwick, Brooklyn. When I moved to Bushwick, when I moved to Brooklyn, I chose Bushwick randomly. We recently opened up in Bushwick. All over Bushwick. Bushwick. Brooklyn, Bushwick. This is Bushwick Podcast, a series that takes you behind the scenes of how people in kitchens, shops, and countless other community spaces create New York City's most dynamic neighborhood. Each week, we step into the journeys that define Bushwick and break down the forces competing to shape its future. These are local stories like you've never heard before. Join us this May, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And it's fun. Rarely do I walk into an interview and know very little about a person, but at the same time, respect them so much for what they've done. Um, I was given the opportunity to meet Eugene Joe Park uh, today, but I, I've, I've seen your career evolved, uh, or at least heard about the arc of what you've done throughout the years, through the lens of not only Chef's Table, but also David Chang, you are one of few people that I've seen come from Seoul, work for Momofuku, go back to Seoul, and then be lured back by David Chang. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's quite a feat in and of itself, and the fact that you've been able to stand David in multiple continents. But being born and raised and eating and cooking throughout Seoul, Korea, um, that is your heart. That is your cuisine. That is your food. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up in Seoul, the, the food that you experienced, and how that informs your menu now? Mm-hmm. Um, I was born and raised in Korea. I uh, grew up in Seoul till eight, and then I moved to countryside with my parents to our grandparents uh, because my parents were opening up a restaurant. So my grandparents raised me. Um, it was a countryside, so I grew up like just going through farms, like neighbors' farm, like 
stealing their snow, like sweet potatoes at, at night and digging up the holes and grill them with a like, bunch of like teenagers and then eat them with like grandma's kimchi. And that's like the memory, like fondest memory I have. See, I was running into the woods of Westchester <laughs> drinking beer and Kit Kat bars. Very different experience. Mm-hmm. But y- your parents' restaurant was a sushi bar or a sushi counter. Uh, it was a Korean Korean version of sushi. Yeah, what is the Korean version of that? Uh, it's called hui. Um The biggest difference is Japanese sashimi are eaten itself with like little wasabi and sh- like soy sauce. Very simple, and the fish is aged. Um, whereas Korean hui is like they love the raw, like fresh. So they kill it right in front of you. Fish might be living, like still be moving, but they love the texture of like the fresh flesh. Um, I don't know if you have eaten like just killed fish. It's very crunchy, actually, the texture. And Koreans love that. They think it's, that's the flavor of the freshness. Does the flavor change at all? I know there's a degradation over fish that is aged mm-hmm. or, you know, not freshly killed. Mm-hmm. Um, so aside from texturally, what, how does it change on the palate? It's more of a texture than flavor. Yeah. yeah. That, that's, so you yourself have killed and eaten fish. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is, is that something that's ingrained in a lot of people's, you know, cooking education uh, or maybe not even formally? Is that something that you just learn through your family and just do as a family? Yeah, that's just how I grew up. And it was just something natural to me. Yeah. To be eat, eating, you know, live octopus or I didn't think there was anything weird. I think I had live octopus once and the tentacles get stuck to the oh, interior yeah. of your cheeks. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the oddest sensations at first. And they used to chew really fast so it yeah. choke. <laughs> <laughs> is that something you'll be serving at the new restaurant? No. <laughs> no, not live octopus. But but there's a lot of great seafood. I mean, Manhattan itself is surrounded by water. Mm-hmm. Um You've lived in Seoul, Korea. You've lived in the countryside. I know you've spent time in New York and Philadelphia. What is it that attracts you to working in New York City, uh, being that it is so different from being in Seoul? Well, I didn't appreciate much when I was living in New York. Um, I think I realized it once I moved back to Korea. Korea is nothing like, of course, America, especially New York. Um, It's all Korean. And if, if, let's say, if you want to order in, let's say, like, Korean seamless, it's all Korean food. Like, there's not, like, many diverse cuisines. It's growing, but it still lacks a lot compared to New York. And I miss that a lot about New York. It's, like, in our own country. So let's talk about the breadth of what Korean food is uh, or maybe how it's seen through an American lens. What do you think Americans think Korean food is? Funky, garlicky. Um, spicy and rice. Are they right? Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally right. But there's definitely a thin scope of the giant, giant lens. Yeah. Then talk to me about some of the genres of Korean food too. Um, uh, hot pot. I, I know K Town here on Thirty Second Street between you know Fifth and Broadway. It's a vertical city of Korean delight. Um, and I go there primarily for two things. I go there for the kind of version of hot pot, and then I go there for chicken wings. And mm-hmm. that's it. But what what else is underneath that larger Korean umbrella? Um, before the Japan and the Korean War, it was highly focused on royal cuisine. Um, and the war happened, and everyone needed to eat 
that's when the stews come in, the hot pots, and all the shareable panchans come in. It used to be, they used to get their individual tray with their rice, their own soup, and their own panchan. But now you don't see that. You, don't, you wouldn't think that as Korean food. Yeah, there is that big division. I mean, the two things that you've primarily cooked in in Korea are royal versus temple. Mm-hmm. Um, let's set that up. Let's define what that is. What are those two cuisines and how are they completely different? Um, I would say royal cuisine comes from or inspired by temple cuisine. They come in the same foundation. Temple cuisine is straight, strictly vegan. Where royal cuisine is, you know, use of everything, very high-end ingredient. Um, it starts with soup. To like, to, so royal cuisine is all about taking care of the king's health. So stirring the soup, very mild flavors, nothing spicy, and then it's very elegant. Not bland, elegant. Um, when I first had it in Korea, I thought it was bland, but when you get used to it, it's very. Elegant. Yeah. Yeah. And temple cuisine, I know at least in other countries, the reason it's vegan um, is to not necessarily insult anyone. I mean, there's also the respect to the animal Mm -hmm. and to the land. But I've seen vegan cuisine or temple cuisine um, use a lot of fake meat because they also want to present something someone's... uh, they don't want to put shame on someone that eats meat. Is that that the same thing in Korean? No, it's totally different. I mean... I'm not Buddhist, Buddhist, I, and I'm Catholic, and it was my first time experiencing temple cuisine. Um, I was middle of the mountain, and there was like no use of like. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna make fake sausage for our guests to come in. I'm gonna make it fresh, silken tofu, like just pick vegetables. Like. It was about food and the ingredients that was growing, but not who I'll be cooking for. Did you have any of this kind of education before you immigrated to the U.S.? No, not at all. So (laughs) it's fascinating to me that this is the latter part of your life, Mm -hmm. because at what age did you move to Philadelphia? Twelve. And why did you choose that city? Um, Just the fact that it was my parents' friends lived there, and then he helped us to immigrate to the States. What was the first Philly food did you have? Was it cheesesteaks, soft pretzels? Um, First food was chicken tender at McDonald's. Um, my dad's friend gave me a little dark sauce to dip it, and then I thought it was ketchup, and I was so shocked. It was a barbecue sauce, and that was my first memory of American food. And I'm sure that inspired you to go to the CIA, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I went to tech school in high school, and I worked in this like small like a small old restaurant and the chef there graduated from CIA and he guided me to pursue my career in CIA. The career you chose too was very fine dining. Mm -hmm. What was it about that style of restaurant that that kind of caught your attention? Um, I think one thing comes from being Korean and also being an immigrant, like seeing your parents moving to other country, like starting from zero, and you see them and you're like, if I want to be a chef, I want to be the best of the chef. And so I want to work in the best restaurant. So I started, my first job was at Danielle. I mean, that's a pretty big name. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised they 
call me back. What, what did you do? Uh, were you kind of relegated to the dungeons, the pits of that restaurant, doing prep work and then had to work your way up? Yeah, I spent um first few months in basement doing banquets. And then I did feast and fat, which is a catering part of the company. And then I moved to main kitchen after like eight, nine months. And then what followed that was Lebec Finn in Philadelphia, another kind of legendary establishment, and, and Thomas Keller's per se. Um, what were you trying to gain out of being in these kitchens? Um, that refinement or... Because I think what we'll talk about next is, is going back to Korea and really finding yourself through your native, you know, indigenous cuisine. But what was it in these restaurants that was more than just white tablecloth? What techniques or foods were you learning that, you know, excited you? Well, learning in CIA, I learned the base foundation of all food was French, based in French cuisine. So I wanted to learn the best French cuisine, which was Danielle. Uh, I missed home, so I decided to move back to Philadelphia. And then I was into Lübeck Finn. And it was really hard. And I questioned myself if I wanted to continue making so little money, working so much. So I actually thought about going back to school, not knowing which major, but I was like, maybe this isn't for me. So I sent out my last, this is like my last time sending out any resumes. So I'm like, Percy's not going to hire me. I, I sent it to everyone. And to my f- surprise, Chef Benno was a chef at the per se at the time he called i took greyhound bus stage for two days and then started per se you spent a couple more years in new york actually a handful of years in new york after that and in 2013 started working for momofuku co mm-hmm. um a komi in the kitchen rose up to chef de partie and after what was it three or four years you decided to go uh, back to a little Korea. over two years yeah mm-hmm. so what was it? What was the swan song of being at Momofuku Co. that led you to want to go back home? Home, home. Um, past work experience were all like American, French technique and ingredients. Whereas Co. I was more open to the ingredients that I never used that were so familiar to me, like fish sauce, soy sauce. And cre- like trying to create a dish it always inspired back to Korean food that I grew up with, but I didn't have any knowledge. So I really wanted to go back to Korea and learn my roots. From the pantry up, it seems. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take a quick break and we come back and we're going to talk more about fish sauce, soy sauce, (laughs) jangs, and sesame oil. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. 
Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkia. Here today with Joe Park. And Joe's opening up a restaurant for David Chang, Momofuku Group, in Hudson Yards this spring. And it's been a very felicitous path, it seemed. Uh, immigrating to the U.S., working at some amazing fine dining restaurants, and then finding yourself returning to Seoul, Korea. Uh, can you tell me about why that decision then? and who you got to stage with? Um, when I left Momofuku, I was 29, and I never traveled, so I actually backpacked for one year, and then I, my last stop was in Korea. Um, there I met Lucy, who I work with at Per Se, and she owns a Kaon restaurant in Korea. And she said, if you want to learn Korean cuisine, like, just mind as well, just work with me at our, our restaurant. And we can provide you a, any knowledge that you need. So, that's where I went. What, what style of restaurant was that? Um, royal cuisine, very fine dining, very small, seats only like 20 guests a night. I mean, you, you say that like it's not a three-star Michelin restaurant. Oh, three Michelin <laughs> restaurant, of course. So it's not like you were just going into some local place in Seoul. This was a highly lauded restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the difference between that kind of fine dining that you see in Korea and New York or Philadelphia? Um, definitely the ingredients they were using were that I never seen before, like Korean wild greens. Um, sourcing the best Korean ingredients from Korea was an eye-opening to me. And the preparation part, too. Like, they don't have any machines in the kitchen. They only have one tool per chef, which is a knife. And then you do everything just using the knife. No RoboCoup, no microplane, just just your knife. How intimidating is that? It's very intimidating. (laughs) Like, I thought I was pretty good with my knife skills, but, like... On my weekends, I would go home and practice. And how do you practice? I mean, I know there are tons of different knife skills, but what are the most rudimentary in that kind of environment? Um, the big practice I did was there's no peeler. So peeling apple or pear, you're using your scissor. I'm, I'm sorry, not scissor. You're using your knife and you're turning up and down, trying to peel an apple. And I would just spend like hours home just peeling a bunch of onions. And apples. I like how you tease the word scissors because <laughs> the importance of that is is is, is ultimate, and mm-hmm. it, it will be coming soon. But keep that in your mind: scissor <laughs> versus knife. Um, I know you also spent time with a monk, mm-hmm. um, and not just any monk. If anyone's seen Chef's Table, a very specific and, and very inspired and influential woman. Um, tell me who she is and why you decided to, you know, look at temple cuisine again too after hitting the upper echelons of the royal courts um Cheongwan is a celebrated buddhist monk in korea she's not as celebrated in korea compared to outside because of the netflix um i watched her through netflix actually in korea and i really believed her philosophy and i really wanted to just learn from her so I went to go visit her on my weekend, and she said, you can come in whenever you want. So I took a month off from my work and then spent a month there. Talk to me about what the temple itself looks like, what it smells like. 
if you are dropped a menu in front of you when you sit and eat there? I mean, it's beautiful. It's just like what you see on Netflix. It's middle of the mountain. Um, it takes about four hours to get there from Seoul. You have to get off the train, and then you have to take taxi that's going to go up all the way to the mountain. Um, it's very serene, quiet, and very natural. Why would you ever want to come back to New York after that serenity? After that stillness, that calm? I mean, New York is a crazy, crazy place. What was it that David Chang said to you to lure you back? Um, so he's been telling me about growing within the company, for even when I was working there, working at Cull. But I uh, met him twice in Korea, and he talked about the upcoming projects, and I said, I'm not ready. I, I know I'm not ready, but knowing that I'm not ready, but believing someone that I truly respect and believe, and he believes in me, that got me into coming back to New York. He's been such an advocate of the Korean pantry introducing a lot of those ingredients and flavors to an American audience. Um, what did you learn in Korea, or what did you taste in Korea that you think hasn't been introduced via the Momofuku lens or uh, David Chang's you know, multitude of media outlets? Um, what are you trying to take from your experiences back here and integrate into the new Momofuku restaurant? Um, so I've been... R&Ding for past six months, and we've been testing lots of fermentation. And I really want to bring really aged fermentation that I can introduce in, after three years of the opening of the restaurant and be like, hey, this is what I've been working on three years ago. And after one year later, it's like continuous, like a story. So you making your own fish sauce, soy sauces, jengs. Soy sauce, I'm trying. <laughs> fish sauce, I'm, it's working on. Yeah. Any jengs? Chang, I'm working on. But meju is the um, fermentation starter. They're really hard to make. And I've been, fa- I've been failing for past three times. So we'll see where it takes us. Uh, There's such a boom right now in fermentation. A lot of people like having their hands. But... It's such an inconsistent thing because mm-hmm. it takes so long to make and, you know, it's ever evolving. And once you use it up and you make it again, it's not the same product. How as a chef do you, you know, consider that in menu development, that you're teaching somebody, you know, how to cook something, but you're never giving them the same pantry twice? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's the beauty of fermentation. If there's a boundary of knowing how far this will flip this will taste from 1 to 10 and knowing every batch I will make is not 5 but it's 1 to 10 and it's unique in its own way you know I think a lot of the temple cuisine is so restrained beautifully restrained Um, maybe David's food isn't necessarily seen as that where do you find yourself falling on the scale of temple to royal in opening this new restaurant well, temple food, for me, it, it's not about me making vegan food. It's about philosophy of using every everything, starting from like root of the scallion to tip of the scallion, you know. And I want really want to use that within Kawi. Um, we're going to use a lot of seafood, so head to the bones, using, yeah, everything of the trim. 
you just dropped the name Kawi. Yes, I did. <laughs> and what, what does that mean in Korean? Um, Kawi means scissor. It's a literal translation. And what's so special about scissors? Well, scissors in Korean cuisine, not Korean cuisine, in Korea kitchen, we use it a lot. In every kitchen, we use it a lot, but especially Korean, we use it to incorporate in service. Um, cutting meat, noodle, rice cake. And it's a tool that everyone uses, but they don't appreciate much. So it, so I want to use that as um, bringing Korean dishes that are people don't appreciate much, or it's like a very humble food, and to highlight them. You don't mean scissors table side necessarily. You mean scissors in the kitchen. But how do you parlay that experience of a cook into people that want to recreate Korean food with scissors at home? Well, it will be definitely in table side too. Oh, excellent. So I always servers, love a good table side. <laughs> so servers will bring it, um, cut rice cakes, noodles, meat, fish. So it will be like very engaging, like fun restaurant. Excellent. And I know there's so many different aspects to this restaurant. I mean, in opening your first restaurant, there's hiring, there's HVAC, there's this, there's that. What are you most intimidated by and what are you most excited about? Um, I'm most excited about building my own team and drive, be the driving force to become better as a whole. Not myself, as myself, but as a group too. And I'm intimidated by everything else. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning as I go. I'm learning every day, but it's a lot. It's a lot to take. Yeah. What do you like in the kitchen? Are you restrained? Are you quiet? Are you reserved? Or I'm definitely more reserved than quiet. Um, that's how I worked. Not much talking. Put your head down and just work. And yeah, that's how I work. Do you see that in uh, reflected in your applicants? Do you see that reflected in the way that your staff is working with you? Are they accommodating to how you cook or are they bringing their own natural flair? Um, I think both should be balanced enough that that I can benefit from them and them benefiting from my learning experience too. Amazing. <laughs> no, I, I'm just trying to soak in the fact that you were aware enough at some point in your life to say, no, I'm not ready. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why you went back to Korea. Maybe that's why you took your time studying the differences between Royal and Temple and, you know, the Korean pantry. Uh, a lot of cooks, chefs today jump into an opportunity because it served to them. What made this the perfect time for you to do so? I think just the timing was right. I... I still think that I'm not ready, but the opportunity came and I had balls to take it. So I yeah. just took it. <laughs> uh, not, not to use the idiom, but I think it's very much like running with scissors. Not that it's dangerous per se, but that it seems like you're ready to take that next step no matter where it's going to take you. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I am so excited to see some scissors table side. <laughs> Kawhi and Joe, congratulations. Thank you so um, much. Yeah, well, welcome back to New York. <laughs> Thanks for having me today. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to our sponsors, Music by Cookies and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.